in Job chapter 4, verse 7, he said, remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. Then further along in chapter 22, verse 5, he says, Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. With all of his maturity and experience, he was so sure that Job was guilty and filled with sin, yet he was ignorant, presumptuous, presumptuous and couldn't be more wrong. Then Bildad, Job's other friend, whose words were shorter but maybe a little more hurtful than Eliphaz's words, told Job, if your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Wow. We can only imagine how much this hurt Job, as the scriptures tell us that every morning, not once in a while, but every morning, he would get up to offer burnt offerings to God for his children, just in case they sinned against him. And if that wasn't enough, his third, quote unquote, comforter, Zophar, who only gave two speeches, but his words may have been more harsh than both Eliphaz's and Bildad's. He told Job that with everything you're going through, God gave you less than you deserve. Wow. How could a friend say that to someone? Whether you think it's true or not, why would you say something like that, that God gave you less than you deserve? And Job, weary of their unhelpful advice, correctly told them, you are miserable comforters, all of you. And then God himself, in the end, condemned Eliphaz and his two friends. In chapter 42, verse 7, he said to Eliphaz, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right. But did you notice that in the previous chapters, as God is questioning Job over and over again, he never once tells Job the cause of his suffering, why he was going through what he was going through. But he did show him his vast knowledge and his sovereignty over everything, implying that with everything Job was going through, he should trust God, knowing that God knows what is going on in his life. And Job did finally learn the lesson in the end, as he confesses, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And isn't that what we all do? In the midst of our trials, we act as if God has never did anything good for us and that we're never going to get out of this as if this is how it is always going to be. And then we start to move on feelings and emotions. But no matter what we're going through, as born again children of God, we must always remember that God's love overcomes our suffering. This is a one-point sermon, and that's the one point. God's love overcomes our suffering. Right dead smack in the middle of the portion of Scripture that we will be looking at today. We'll be looking at Romans chapter 5, once again, verses 1 through 5. But right there in verse 3, we read the words, we rejoice in our sufferings. And if we were to read those words separated from the text, 
we would be left bewildered, wondering, how is that possible? How could we uh, uh, rejoice in our sufferings? How could God ask us through Paul to do such a thing? But it is not an isolated text. And hopefully, by the time we're finished here today, you will have a better understanding of how we can and how we are commanded to rejoice in our sufferings. So let us now read the pure and holy word of the Lord in Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Can you please pray with me as I seek God to grant me all of the help that I can get at this time? Father, I pray that you would work through me that your son may be glorified. Let your word come forth in purity and in truth. May your spirit not only hover in our midst, but work through us that life would replace death and light would shine where darkness once reigned. Please bring Christ-like transformation to our hearts and minds so we may yearn to be more like Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Now, after making his case in the previous chapter that God justifies sinners by grace alone and not through circumcision, see Abraham, and not through good works, see David, Paul now builds on this fact by showing that not only were we justified by grace alone, but we also have access to the magnificent God of the universe through this same faith. What an incredible advantage that we have over every other religion. No other religion possesses that. In 1992, some Protestants were overjoyed because they believed that the Catholic Church made a huge change in their beliefs and finally came to the realization that salvation is by justification through faith alone because of one line in that new declaration, that brand new 1992 catechism of the Catholic Church. Written in there, it says all salvation comes from Christ the head through the church, which is his body. And many Protestants declared them brethren that we can now fellowship with until they ask a few more questions. Like, what do you mean through the church? Then they were reminded that the Catholic Church never denied that salvation was through faith. They just denied that salvation was by faith alone. So in 1992, to the disappointment of many Protestants, it was acknowledged by all that the beliefs of the Catholic Church never really changed at all. In our text, Paul gives the evidence that our eternal bond and justification with God is attained and sustained through faith alone by pointing out our forever peace with God in verse 1, our forever standing in the grace of God in verse 2a, and our forever hope of glory because of the love of God in verses 2b through 5. And they're all on the basis of faith alone. 
Never forget, beloved, that Christ was delivered for our offenses and raised for our justification. He did what we could never do, reconcile ungodly men, sinners, to God. And that's the only reason that we have peace with God. I want you to think of Mary Magdalene for a second. Filled with sin, standing before Jesus with an empty alabaster flask. That's what it was. Some say box, jar. But it was a flask. It's empty now. And then she kneels down and begins to weep at his feet. And then she begins to wipe his feet with her hair. Why? Why was she doing all this? Because she was not right before God. And she knew it. But this man could do something about it. This man can change her status before God. He can make her righteous. He can make her clean and take away God's wrath towards her. One minute, she's being condemned by Simon the Pharisees. As in his mind, he's saying, if this man was a prophet, if Jesus was a prophet, he would know what type of woman this was who was touching him, for she is a sinner. But the next minute she hears the Savior say, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And it wasn't peace with Simon the hypocritical Pharisee that she needed or wanted. It was peace with the almighty God of the universe that was needed and granted by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what this scripture is saying to us. One minute, we're filled with sin before God, the God of the universe. Our cup spilling over with transgressions. And according to John chapter 3, verse 36, his wrath is upon us. But the very next moment after we have repented and believed in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, it is taken away. We are given access to the throne of God and the mercy of God has come and lifted us out of where we used to be. But on the flip side of that is the fact that the holy, righteous God of all creation cannot be at peace with the unrepentant and the unbelieving sinner because they are still under the wrath, guilt, and condemnation of a holy God due to unpaid for sins. If you are not born again, then you have not been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. You have not been cleansed, and all of your sins are still upon you. You are still loaded with them before God. Therefore, your sins are, what, are what, what's keeping you separated from the mercy and love of God that is eternal. And it is only the common mercy of God that is keeping you every day. Wherever you go, I'll put it like one, one, one of the old Puritans said. He said, your, God's hand is keeping the sinner. Wherever he goes, in your car, to the store, his, his, his hand is under you, keeping you. But there's going to come a time when the mercy of God says, it's over. It's done. His mercy has been taken away at that time because you have not received the Lord Jesus Christ. And once he removes his hand, the very next thing you will experience is the torments of hell. 
The very next thing you will experience is intense pain where the worm never dies. However, going back to the other side, for those who have placed their faith in Jesus, in verse 2 of Romans chapter 5, it says, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Through Jesus, believers have access to God. It doesn't say that we will have access at some point in the future, which is true. That's also true. But now we have access to God. How amazing is that? And here's what that means. When I'm weak, worn down, and just don't feel like doing what God wants me to do today. I just don't feel it. I'm, I just don't want to do what is right. I'm reassured that I do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with my weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as I am. My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Remember that. I do not have, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So now, with confidence, I can go boldly. I can, uh, I'm drawn near. I can come to God as my father. I can go to his throne of grace. And we can go to his throne, throne, throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Going back to the other side, if you're not a born again believer and a member of the family of God, you don't have that. So I'm asking you today, I'm imploring you to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ so that he may convert, transform, and adopt you into his family. That you would be someone who now loves the Lord with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Think of the Canaanite woman who cried out to Jesus, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Her daughter was severely oppressed by a demon, but she was a Canaanite woman. At that time, she had no right to think that she would receive anything from the Lord. She was so far removed from having the right ethnic, social, cultural, cultural political, and gender qualifications. But she cried out all the more, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Today, I'm asking you who are far removed from the mercy of God to cry out to Jesus. Have mercy on me, O Lord, eternal Son of God, that he, may, he might bring you near and give you access to his throne, which is what you need. Verse 2 continues by saying, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. It may look like one blessing in this half of a sentence, but it's actually two blessings. A hope of the glory of God and a joy arising from that hope. By the glory of God is meant the uh, vision and enjoyment of the God of glory in the future state. After the resurrection and the judgment, there will be a full conformity to Jesus Christ in soul and body for all who believe. We shall be made like him because we shall see him as he is. First John chapter three, verse two promises us. 
So we have hope and joy as we look forward to the time we will dwell with the glorious society, society of saints and angels and the glorious world we will inhabit for all eternity. Because Christ has risen and prepared a place for us, we also shall rise and enter into that place. Those of us that are justified by grace through faith alone have a lively and well-grounded hope which causes us to rejoice even in the midst of our temporal sufferings. And we have to remember they are temporal sufferings. This is why verse 3a goes on to say, but we rejoice in our sufferings. There it is. That's our sentence. Now we're getting down to the nitty gritty, as they used to say. You young people, y'all don't know about that. But that's what we used to say, get down to the nitty gritty. And that's what we're doing right now. Now we're going to get to the truth of whether we really believe everything that the Apostle Paul has been saying up until now. And with that, there are a couple of questions that we need to ask ourselves. We must ask ourselves, do we really have the faith that justifies? If not, then do we really have peace with God? If we can't say yes to the first question, do we really have the faith that justifies? We may have just found the root cause for why we have little to no joy as a child of God and could never rejoice in our sufferings because we don't have peace with God. Jude may have had some members of his church who were dealing with the same issues because after telling his people to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, he told them to build yourselves up in your most holy faith as if they were down. Then he told them to pray in the Holy Spirit and keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Practically, what does that look like? What does it mean to build yourselves up in the most holy faith? Here it is. As you have meaningful Bible studies, whether by yourself or with someone else, you are building yourself up. You are taking your faith to another level. And most importantly, you are strengthening your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ so that when that trial comes, when that tribulation hits you from the left side and you, you are caught off guard, your feet is so far planted in the mercy and love and patience and, and, and goodness of God that you cannot be shaken. You will be able to stand as, as, as people you love disappoint you and, and people you trusted break your confidence in them because you have already been in the word, soaking in the word, reading the word as if he's writing to you, which he is. These stories have been given to us for our admonition so that we may be uh, 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 strengthened and know that God is able, that God can help you through as you pray, you know that his eyes are upon you, the righteous, and he hears your prayers. As you read the word, you see how he delivered David and Abraham. 
Isaac and Jacob taking them to places that they could not possibly know. They could not possibly see how this is all going to work out. But somehow we think that we have to know everything before we can trust God. Your faith isn't for Sunday mornings 10 to 12. Your faith is for every time after that. We look at the fruit of the spirit and it's easy to be loving when people are loving. It's easy to have joy when the situation calls for it. Right? It's great. But when you're in your job and people aren't so loving and your boss isn't filled with joy, what do you do? Do you start to act like him or her? Or do you trust God because you have been reading the word, filling up your soul for this time, for such a time as this? You have been built up for times when you just said, how in the world am I going to make it? Oh, yeah. God is my provider. God called me when I was a sinner. I like the description that Isaiah gives. He says, I came to you when you were choking in your blood. Umbilical cord wrapped around your neck. I washed you up. I brought you into my place. I, I set you up in a nice vineyard where you would always be fed. And we say, no, I don't believe it. We say, no, I'm going to do it on my own. As if we got here on our own. God came, God came to us when we were sinners. So then we trip and we fall and we think that's it. As if God didn't know. God's caught off guard. Oh, what happened? No. God says, I saw you. Back before I said, let there be light. And I called you with an eternal call, an effectual call is what they call it. A call that says... I have to change. I have to go to the Lord. I have to praise the Lord. It was not you. It wasn't you being a good person. All of a sudden, I want to change my life. It was no morality act that was going to get you into heaven. It was God who said, Mike. It was God who said, Jim, Juliet. And you responded. Whatever you were doing, because we are all sinners. Whatever had you strapped by the neck and saying, go this way. Don't be forgiving. They don't deserve your forgiveness. Whatever was causing you to live far from God, God called you, said, come as you are. You came, then you heard the word of God, and you said, I'm a sinner. I have to repent. I can't be a hypocrite. I can't keep doing this. I can't still be uh, an abusive slanderer, a foul-mouthed backbiter. I can't keep doing this. So he says, come as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you like that. He says, I want you to come into my home, into my kingdom, and I'm going to show you acceptable behavior in my kingdom. And he teaches us how to walk how to talk. He teaches us how to forgive and how to love. We thought we were loving, but we only loved when the situation called for it. But he says, no, I want you to show, I, I want to show you myself. You didn't love me first. I loved you. And I kept you. And I cleaned you up. And I showed you an eternal love. Now you turn around and you go out and you do the same. Taught you how to fight the battle. Go out there and fight and fight the good fight of faith. 
knowing that Christ has already won the fight for you. Then Jude goes on to say, praying in the Holy Spirit, which means pray not as your flesh desires, but as the Holy Spirit wills, leads, and desires for you. Praying for holiness, praying to flee sexual immorality, praying you'll stop the foul language, praying for a kind heart, praying God will give you a demeanor that seeks to forgive and not hold grudges, so forth and so on. Going forth, you know what is keeping you from God. You know what you're doing, but so does God. God knows also. And he says, just open up. Because for me, all things are open and naked. I see it all. So just repent. Just turn around that we may have sweet fellowship. Otherwise, I'm not even hearing your prayers. Thirdly, he says, keep yourselves in the love of God, meaning remain in the place of obedience where God's love is poured out on you. And this is a hard one. This is a hard Yes, he will never cast us out of his home once he has given us that, 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 that relationship through his spirit. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit, and no one can remove that. That is true. But when we live disobedient lives, as disobedient children, we incur his chastening. And if we won't turn, it comes over and over again as a good parent would do in order to straighten you. To help you, to honor him, to honor his kingdom. You don't want to be that person that they say, look, she's supposed to be a Christian, but look at her. You may never hear it, but you are the one hindering people into God's kingdom. You are the one that, 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 that they're looking at and saying, this is why I can't be a Christian. And throughout the year, you're going through numerous dry seasons because your fellowship with God has been damaged by ongoing sinfulness. Repent. Turn. And finally, Jude says, wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. He wants them to have an eager anticipation of Christ's second coming, which will provide eternal life in its ultimate resurrection form, which is the supreme expression of God's mercy on us. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, it says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is how the child of God maintains his joy and peace when the world around him is crashing and burning, when someone has their finger on the button, threatening to blow up the United States, we still keep our minds stayed on him because he keeps us in perfect peace. Why? Because we trust him. We still look to the Lord from whence comes our help. And through it all, we continue to love one another, mixing in good works, knowing that the day of Christ is coming and we shall see him face to face. But for some of you, the question still remains because it hurts. Why must I suffer? I hear everything you're saying, but why me? The Bible explains the ultimate reasons why we suffer. 
And here they are. Number one, we suffer because we live in a fallen world. You have to get that. Because God has shown you favor for most of your life, you somehow got caught up in that and think that uh, this world is full of roses and all I have to do is skip through it and everybody will love me. No, anytime somebody is not lying on you, slandering against you, trying to hurt you violently, it's because the, 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 the favor and the mercy and the kindness of God is keeping you. Don't ever get fooled into thinking that you are such a great person and that's why kindness has come to you. This is an evil world. This world has been corrupted by our first parents. It's plagued with sin, disease, and natural disasters. Number two, we suffer because of our flesh. Much of our suffering is at our own hands, and we know it. We make choices that make our own lives painful and difficult. Number three, we suffer because others sin against us. From subtle prejudice to incredibly violent personal attacks. At different times in our lives, we all have suffered at the hands of others. Number four, we suffer because of the devil. No matter what you think, there really is an enemy in our world, a trickster and a liar who divides, destroys, and devours. He tempts us with things that we think we just can't do without, that, that we think will bring us eternal joy, and things we think will bring us life. But they actually destroy our lives. Why? Because we hold on to it so tight. We do that with people also whether a wife, a husband, or children. We hold on to him so tight. And God says, I'm a jealous God. You worship me and me alone, the giver of all good and perfect gifts. Don't worship the, 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 the creation. I've given you all things to enjoy. Don't worship them. And number five, we suffer because of God's good purpose. God calls his children to suffer for his glory and their redemptive good. If you never went through anything, how can you relate to anybody who's hurting? How can you relate even to the cross? As if you don't need it. No matter what we're going through, we must always remember that God's love overcomes all of our suffering, no matter where it came from. God's dealing with his beloved son, Jesus, gives us the perfect example of this. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 12, we, we read, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Jesus, being the ultimate sanctifier through his blood, and we who are being sanctified by that blood, all of us have one source, God the Father, who loves us and wants his best for us through his way of doing things. For that reason, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. 
Knowing this, we can boast in what Christ has done. Knowing this, the Apostle Paul can sit in a jail cell in Rome and write to this little church in Philippi and tell them to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. And here in our text, without denying that your pain is real, the Apostle Paul encourages the people of God to live joyfully and dependently on Christ Trusting in the work that he has already done and the perfect life that he has already lived and the cross in which he substituted himself for all who would believe in him. Now, in our text, back in Romans chapter five, Paul continues to tell us why we are to rejoice in our sufferings. In verse three B, he says our suffering produces endurance. Now, in these verses here, you know them well, verses three through five, we have a linked chain. One end of that chain is wrapped around our unfaithful and unreliable hearts. Yes, even as we generate people, we have unfaithful and unreliable hearts. But the other end of that chain is wrapped around the cross with his faithfulness and reliability that he will not be moved so that we will not be moved because that chain cannot be broken. Sometimes, and we know this, we trust in our own feelings too much. And I can't stress that enough. In almost every sermon, I just have to bring it up because we still do it. Our feelings. And sometimes in counseling, I'll tell people that's, that's a bad word. I'm not denying your feelings, but the decisions you make that have consequences can't be on feelings alone. They have to be on the facts and based on your faith. And going through this link chain, you can't skip any of the links. And you must begin at the beginning if you're going to be carried on to the end. And I'm going to read verses three through five from the MMT, the Mike Moultrie translation. You guys, you guys seen that one? Here it goes. If we are to, to have a joy immovable over our suffering, we must have access to God. And if we are to have access to God, we must have peace with God. And if we are to have peace with God, we must have the condemnation and the guilt taken away. And if we are to have the condemnation and the guilt taken away, Jesus Christ must take them. If Jesus Christ is to take them, then I am justified, which came through faith in him alone. That's the starting point. That's Romans chapter 5, verse 1. That's where it all begins, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Then you can work it backwards and make it personal. And say something like, if I, Mike Moultrie, having saving faith in Jesus Christ, then the love of God has been poured out into my heart and the hope I now have exists because Jesus Christ faithfully built my 
character through my trials, so I also possess endurance because God's ordained suffering made me stronger and wiser, and now I rejoice because I have access to God and peace with God, all because I was justified by God through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. That's Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, up close and personal. You may not feel it or see it, but the love of God is continually overcoming your suffering. That's why you are here right now. Think of all the trials and the ridiculously hard times that you have faced, but you're here. I pray you see it. I pray you see it, whether you feel it or not, so that your joy may begin to overflow. But if not, even if you don't feel it or see it and your sorrow feels overwhelming today, there will come a time when you will rejoice and enter into his bosom and have your tears wiped away as you walk with him in eternal peace. The word of God promises that after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. There is a time quickly approaching when you will understand the words of Paul and you will even say, you know, everything I went through really was only a light temporary affliction. And it was just preparing me for this eternal weight of glory that truly is beyond all comparison. 2 Corinthians 4.17 I am here living with God. He has wiped away every tear. There's no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain. It's all gone. And the former things that used to hurt me have passed away. <coughs> you're going to say it. Watch. Watch. You're going to say it, and you're going to remember this moment and smile. You're going to remember me right here telling you that you're going to say it. I may not be in that part of the new heavens and the new earth with you. I just may be on the golf course with Methuselah getting in around. But you're going to say it. Watch, and you're going to smile. Now, I want to end with this. I want to end with this. Have you ever considered that another reason we can rejoice in our sufferings is that God may be using the suffering that we're experiencing, experiencing right now to affect the lives of those closest to us? Have you ever thought about that? Question. If you knew that the intense suffering you're going through at this present time was going to bring salvation and sanctification to your unsaved spouse, your mother, your father, your sister, your brother, would you choose to go through it? Would you choose to go through it knowing that they may get saved? How about this? If you knew that the overwhelming sicknesses, the tears, the depression, or the anxiety that you have been experiencing over the past however many years would result in your children crying out to God to give them Jesus more than you have Jesus, would you be more willing to endure those sicknesses, those tears you cried, those times of depression, 
I hope you would say yes for the joy set before you that they just might get saved because of the testimony that I'm leaving, that I can still praise God, that I can still worship a holy savior who gave me what I did not deserve. I could have lived a horrible life and then end up in hell on top of that, but this 70, 80, 90, 100 years is nothing. 10,000 years from now, I'm still playing golf with Methuselah. I'm still doing whatever I'm going to be doing in the new heavens and the new earth. And this 100 years? What was that? It was born in me. It was giving me a reason to praise Jesus and say, thank you. Thank you for showing me how good you are. Because if I didn't go through what I went through, I would never know. I would, know, I would never know the, the depravity of man. I would think everybody was great because my life was so great. And I don't need you. You're all right, God, but I'm good. But the trials come, disappointment, the hurt, the tears come. And we see he is the only one worthy of our praise. He is the only one who will keep us every day the point is this. We can rejoice in our suffering because of the, of the hope of all of these possibilities. And we're told that the hope we have from God is produced by his great love for us in verse 5 of our text. There it says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Praise the Lord. The giving of his love and his spirit provides the evidence we need that we know we belong to him, which means we can trust him in every trial and through every setback. In Psalm chapter 27, verse 10, uh, David says that for my mother and my father have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Do you have that confidence that if the person you trust in the most forsakes you, that you know the Lord will take you in? I pray you do. I pray you know that. I pray you believe that our father is the most loving and trustworthy and faithful person you will ever know. To trust him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength is what you have to, that's the point you have to get to. That's where you have to be. You can't just say, well, I'm a Christian and leave it, never reading your word, never checking in on the brothers to stir up love and good works, never praying with someone. Let me pray for you, brother. What are you going through? Let's talk this week. Let's come together. How can I help you? To show them what Christ showed you. That's what it's about. This life goes by quickly. And you don't want to have those regrets. You don't want to be there saying, I wasted my life on things that didn't matter. Trust him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength because he's worth it. Let us pray. Father, I thank you that you love us with a greater love than we could ever comprehend. Your love says to us, repent and believe in me, and I will forgive you for everything you have ever done. Father, please give us who do believe a consistent faith 
to trust that you will never leave us nor forsake us because the love you have for us continually overcomes our suffering. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.